Chapter Eleven of Running the Blockade by Thomas E. Taylor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: Havana and Galveston, the most expensive city in the world, an adventurous trip, a furious gale in the Gulf Stream, a run to Galveston, a worthless pilot, a norther, drifting in the middle of a blockading squadron. An old friend again. The Banshee nearly lost. Uncomfortably close quarters. A choice of alternatives. A reckless undertaking. Galveston. A scarcity of cotton. A trip to Houston. A sporting conductor and engine driver. The execution of a deserter. Return to Nassau. Ending of the war. A DISASTROUS LIQUIDATION HOME Havana was a great blockade-running center to and from the Gulf ports, but until Wilmington was closed I did not attempt to utilize it, for many reasons preferring Nassau and the last-named port. I went over there, however, several times, partly on business and partly on pleasure, and a lovely city it was. Cuba was then in the heyday of success and no one who had not visited its capital could have imagined that such a gay and beautiful city existed in the West Indies. Money seemed no object, and fortunately there was plenty of it, for everything was extravagantly dear, and I should think that at the time it was one of the most, if not the most, expensive city in the world to live in. To us blockade-runners, accustomed to the hard life in the South and the contracted surroundings of Nassau, Havana appeared like paradise, good hotels and casinos, a capital theatre, magnificent equipages, military bands, handsome women, and last but not least the lavish and genial hospitality dispensed by our consul-general, Mr. Crawford, and his charming daughters at their house, Buenos Aires, made a residence in Havana like a rest in an oasis to the weary traveller of the desert. But it was not all pleasure as far as I was concerned. I had my business, with its anxieties, to attend to, and on one of my visits I had a rather adventurous trip to Nassau in a small schooner which I had chartered to convey some boiler-tubes there. Being very anxious to reach Nassau quickly, I decided to go in her instead of waiting for the mail-steamer, which left a few days later. I made a start in the small craft, her size can be imagined when I state that she was a man-of-war's pinnace raised upon, manned by nine niggers. The first day out we encountered a furious gale in the Gulf Stream, and it is a marvel our little craft lived through it, for a fearful sea was running. However, she proved an excellent sea-boat, and when the gale subsided we found ourselves on the Bahama banks becalmed. For nine days we drifted helplessly over them suffering agonies from the heat, hunger, and thirst, as we had only laid in provisions for about four days, and to make matters worse the bung had been left out of our fresh-water cask, and in the gale the water was rendered undrinkable by the salt water washing over it. Fortunately I had laid in a supply of a dozen of claret and a dozen of beer, and this was all we had to divide between us. However, everything has an end, and on the ninth day we had a spanking breeze which carried us into Nassau, but not until we had been passed about twenty miles outside by the mail-steamer in which I could have come, and whose captain, recognizing me on board the schooner, jeered at me from his bridge. 
when wilmington was on the point of falling there was nothing for it but to transfer our operations to galveston and to accomplish this i took the banshee number no. two over to havana with a valuable cargo accompanied by frank hurst in order to make an attempt to run into galveston this proved to be my last trip but it was far from being the least exciting when all was ready we experienced the greatest difficulty in finding a galveston pilot though owing to the high rate of pay numbers of men were to be found ready to offer their services it was extremely hard to obtain competent men after considerable delay we had to content ourselves at last with a man who said he knew all about the port but who turned out to be absolutely worthless we then made a start and with the exception of meeting with the most violent thunderstorm in which the lightning was something awful nothing extraordinary occurred on our passage across the gulf of mexico and we scarcely saw a sail very different from our experiences between nassau and wilmington when it was generally a case of sail on the port bow or steamer right ahead at all hours of the day the third evening after leaving havana we had run our distance and on heaving the lead and finding that we were within a few miles of the shore we steamed cautiously on in order to try and make out the blockading squadron or the land it was a comparatively calm and very dark night just the one for the purpose but within an hour all had changed and it commenced to blow a regular norther a wind which is very prevalent on that coast until then i had no idea what a norther meant first rain came down in torrents then out of the inky blackness of clouds and rain came furious gusts until a hurricane was blowing against us which notwithstanding that we were steaming at full speed we made little or no way and although the sea was smooth our decks were swept by white foam and spray suddenly we made out some dark objects all around us and found ourselves drifting helplessly among the ships of the blockading squadron which were steaming hard to their anchors and at one moment we were almost jostling two of them whether they knew what we were or mistook us for one of themselves matters not they were too much occupied about their own safety to attempt to interfere as to attempt to get into galveston that night would have been madness we let the banshee drift and when we thought we were clear of the fleet we steamed slowly seaward after a while shaping a course so as to make the land about thirty miles to the southwest at daylight we succeeded in doing this and quietly dropped our anchor in perfectly calm water the norther having subsided almost as quickly as it had risen having seen enough of our pilot to realize that he was no good whatever we decided after a conference to lie all day where we were keeping a sharp lookout and steam handy and determined as evening came on to creep slowly up the coast until we made out the blockading fleet then to anchor again and make a bold dash at daylight for our port all went well we were unmolested during the day and got under way towards evening passing close to a wreck which we recognized as our old friend the will-o'-the-wisp which had been driven ashore and lost on the very first trip she made after i had sold her immediately afterwards we very nearly lost our own ship too seeing a post of confederate soldiers close by on the beach we determined to steam close in and communicate with them in order to learn all about the tactics of the blockaders and our exact distance from galveston we backed her close in to the breakers in order to speak but when the order was given to go ahead she declined to move and the chief engineer reported that something had gone wrong with the cylinder valve and that she must heave to for repairs it was an anxious moment 
Banshee had barely three fathoms beneath her, and her stern was almost in the white water. We let go the anchor, but in the heavy swell it failed to hold. The pilot was in a helpless state of flurry when he found that we were drifting slowly but steadily toward the shore, but Steele's presence of mind never for one moment deserted him. The comparatively few minutes which occupied the engineers in temporarily remedying the defect seemed like hours in the presence of the danger momentarily threatening us. When at length the engineers managed to turn her ahead, we on the bridge were greatly relieved to see her point seawards and clear the breakers. I have often thought since, if a disaster had happened and we had lost the ship, how stupid we should have been thought by people at home. As soon as we reached deep water, the damage was permanently repaired, and we steamed cautiously up the coast, until about sundown we made out the topmasts of the blockading squadron right ahead. We promptly stopped, calculating that as they were about ten to eleven miles from us, Galveston must lie a little further on our port bow. We let go our anchor, and prepared for an anxious night. All hands were on deck, and the cable was ready to be unshackled at a moment's notice, with steam as nearly ready as possible without blowing off, as at any moment a prowler from the squadron patrolling the coast might have made us out. We had not been lying thus very long, when suddenly on the starboard bow we made out a cruiser steaming toward us evidently on the prowl. It was a critical time. All hands were on deck, a man standing by to knock the shackle out of the chain cable, and the engineers at their stations. Thanks to the backing of the coast, our friend did not discover us, and to our relief disappeared to the southward. After this all was quiet during the remainder of the night, which, fortunately for us, was very dark, and about two hours before daylight we quietly raised our anchor and steamed slowly on, feeling our way cautiously by the lead, and hoping, when daylight fairly broke, to find ourselves inside the fleet opposite Galveston and able to make a short dash for the bar. We had been under way some time, when suddenly we discovered a launch close to us on the port bow, filled with northern blue jackets and marines. Full speed ahead, shouted Steele, and we were within an ace of running her down as we almost grazed her with our port paddle-wheel. Hurst and I looked straight down into the boat, waving them a parting salute. The crew seemed only too thankful at their narrow escape to open fire, but they soon regained their senses and threw up rocket after rocket in our wake as a warning to the blockading fleet to be on the alert. Daylight was then slowly breaking, and the first thing we discovered was that we had not taken sufficient account of the effects of the norther on the current. Instead of being opposite the town, with the fleet broad on our starboard beam, we found ourselves down three or four miles from it, and the most lured blockader close to us on our bow. It was a moment for immediate decision. The alternatives were to turn tail and stand a chase to seaward by their fastest cruisers with chance of capture, and in any case a return to Havana, as we had not sufficient coal for another attempt, or to make a dash for it and take the fire of the squadron. In an instant we decided to go for it, and orders to turn ahead full speed were given, but the difficulty now to be overcome was that we could not make for the main channel without going through the fleet. This would have been certain destruction, so we had to make for a sort of swash channel along the beach, which, however, was nothing but a cul-de-sac, and to get from it into the main channel. Shoal water and heavy breakers had to be passed, but there was now no other choice open to us. By this time the fleet had opened fire upon us, 
and shells were bursting merrily around as we took the fire of each ship which we passed. Fortunately there was a narrow shoal between us, which prevented them from approaching within about half a mile of us. Luckily also for us they were in rough water on the windward side of the shoal, and could not lay their guns with precision. And to this we owed our escape, as, although our funnels were riddled with shell splinters, we received no damage, and had only one man wounded. But the worst was to come. We saw the white water already ahead, and we knew our only chance was to bump through it, being well aware that if she stuck fast we should lose the ship and all our lives, for no boat, even if it could have been launched, would have lived in such a surf. With two leadsmen in the chains we approached our fate, taking no notice of the bursting shells and round shot to which the blockaders treated us in their desperation. It was not a question of the fathoms, but of the feet we were drawing. Twelve feet, ten, nine, and when we put her at it, as you do a horse at a jump, and as her nose was entering the white water, eight feet was sung out. A moment afterwards we touched and hung, and I thought all was over, when a big wave came rolling along and lifted our stern and the ship bodily with a crack which could be heard a quarter of a mile off, and which we thought meant that her back was broken. She once more went ahead, the worst was over, and after two or three minor bumps we were in the deep channel, helm hard a-starboard and heading for Galveston Bay, leaving the disappointed blockaders astern. It was a reckless undertaking, and a narrow escape, but we were safe in, and after an examination by the health officer we steamed gaily up to the town, the wharves of which were crowded by people who, gazing to seaward, had watched our exploit with much interest, and who cheered us heartily upon its success. I found Galveston a most forsaken place, its streets covered with sand, its wharves rotting, its defences in a most deplorable condition, very different from those at Wilmington, and if the northerners had taken the trouble, I think they could easily have possessed themselves of it. But our welcome was warm, and during the Banshee's long stay we had a real good time. General Magruder was in command, and many a cheery entertainment we had on board with him and his staff as guests, who were all musical. We had a capital French cook, and as plenty of game, fish, and oysters were procurable, and our good liquor was plentiful, we had all the necessary ingredients for many most sociable evenings. This was the bright side of the picture. The reverse was the difficulty I had in procuring a suitable outward cargo. The inward one was all right, and I found our assortment would sell well, but the trouble was to obtain cotton. There was extremely little of it left near the seaboard, and to get it from further up country was a long, tedious, and expensive process. Moreover, I found there would be great difficulty in having it pressed, and to take a cargo of half-pressed cotton meant very serious loss indeed. However, having arranged for the sale by auction of the inward cargo, Hurst and I started for Houston, the capital of Texas, armed with a letter of introduction to the most influential merchant there, who agreed after endless negotiations to provide at a high price a full-pressed cargo, but required a long time for delivery and payment half in Confederate money, being part of the proceeds of our inward cargo, and the balance by drafts on home. This meant a further loss in withdrawing my superfluous proceeds from the country, but as no better bargain could be made, I agreed. 
Houston, in those days, was a pretty little town, very dull, of course, but fortunately we made the acquaintance of a charming family, refugees from Baton Rouge, who were most kind to us, and I shall ever feel grateful to Mrs. Avery and her fair daughters for the hospitality which they extended to me. After concluding these arrangements I returned to Galveston, being rather amused on the journey by the sudden stoppage of the train, which had been crawling along at about ten miles an hour, followed by the leisurely exit of the conductor and engine-driver, each with a gun on his shoulder, who calmly disappeared across the prairie on a gunning expedition. After about an hour's delay the sportsmen returned fairly successful, and with all aboard we resumed our journey. A few days subsequently I witnessed a sad sight, the execution of a deserter, fine fellow, sergeant of artillery, whose only offence was that he had crossed the Mississippi into the northern lines in order to visit his wife and family, intending, it was believed, to return. He was captured, however, and condemned to death by court-martial, and the whole of the garrison of Galveston was paraded to witness his execution. It was an anxious time for the authorities, as it was expected that his battery would attempt the rescue, so the other two batteries were drawn up opposite with guns loaded ready to fire on it if it did. The sergeant was led out, and six men were placed a few paces in front of him. After refusing to have his eyes bandaged, he dropped his hand as a signal for them to fire. A report as from one rifle rang out, and he dropped on his face dead. The saddest part of this incident was that, within an hour of his execution, a pardon arrived from headquarters at Houston on a railway trolley. No locomotive being available, four men had worked the trolley down, but too late. Finding that the accumulation of cargo and consequent loading of the banshee would occupy a long time, and owing to the critical state of affairs in the South, rendering it absolutely necessary for me to return to Nassau as soon as possible, I decided to take a passage in a friend's blockade runner, then ready to start, leaving my able lieutenant, Frank Hurst, to settle up things and come out in the banshee. But I did not like it at all. It was the first time I was to try the venture in a strange craft, and as a mere passenger, and from what I had seen of the skipper I had not much overconfidence in him. On a night which was eminently suited for the purpose, we made a start, but no sooner did we get down to the tripod, which marked the entrance to the channel, than we made out a couple of the blockaders, a sight quite enough for the nerves of our captain, who declared we should certainly be seen, and immediately gave orders to turn back. Though this was not my idea of blockade running, as I had been accustomed to it, but being a passenger I had no locus standi on board, we put back to the harbour, and next morning were well chaffed. To make a long story short, we made a second attempt next night with like results, and I was beginning to feel thoroughly disgusted. Every hour's delay, with a growing moon, now increased our risks. On the third night, by dint of goading the skipper, whose coal was running short, I persuaded him to harden his heart and make a run for it. When we reached the tripod we made out several of the squadron, but we put our helm a-starboard, ran along the land, and fortunately got clear. Crossing the Gulf of Mexico we made out nothing, perhaps this was because no lookout was kept, and mightily glad I was when we made the coast of Cuba and steamed into Havana. This trip was certainly a revelation to me as regards blockade running, and no wonder many a fine boat navigated no doubt on the same lines as the blank, 
had been thrown away. This was my last trip, the 28th, a record, I think, for any Englishman during the war, and considering the narrow squeaks that I had, and that I only came to grief once in the Nighthawk, I had a great deal to be thankful for. Upon my arrival in Havana I found the mail-boat was starting for Nassau next day, and in her I took my passage. I found Nassau much changed, as during my absence Wilmington, after an heroic defence of Fort Fisher by my old friend Lamb, had been captured, and had it not been for the supineness, and not to use a stronger phrase, of General Bragg, who commanded the Confederate forces outside the fort, and who failed to attack the northern attacking force in the rear when the assault was made, Lamb's second defence would have been as successful as the first, and Fort Fisher and Wilmington would have been saved to the Confederate government, a result which might have had a very important bearing upon the issue of the struggle. Wilmington and Charleston now being closed, Nassau's days as a blockaded running centre were over, and the only thing to do was to wind up our affairs as well as we could, and prepare to go home. Even then it was evident that the game was up as far as the South was concerned, and very shortly afterwards we heard of Lee's surrender and the virtual ending of the war. In the interim the Banshee arrived, having cleared out of Galveston without trouble, and transshipped her cargo at Havana, which, although the war was over, sold for very high prices in Liverpool. But the liquidation of our affairs generally was a disastrous one, our steamers were practically valueless, and as a matter of fact the Banshee and Nighthawk, which I sent home, and which had cost uh, between them some seventy thousand pounds, we sold for six thousand pounds. Two or three other boats which I sent to South America for sale realized miserable prices, so that this, combined with the enormous stakes we had imprisoned in the South, and which were confiscated, took the guilt considerably off our gingerbread. It had been an exciting and eventful period, however, and had I gone through it again with the experience I had gained in the trade, I could have made large fortunes for my employers and myself. But in the early part of the war, when the northerners, owing to want of ships, could only blockade the southern ports in a half-hearted way, we let our golden opportunity slip in trying to work with indifferent tools, i.e. slow, worn-out, heavy draught steamers, and it was not until almost too late that my friends at home woke up and sent me out a better class of boat. By that time the blockade had become most stringent, and to evade it was an affair involving a tremendous risk, even with the fastest and best-equipped vessels and commanded by the most daring men. After closing up my affairs in Nassau I returned home for what I think I deserved a well-earned rest, and I am sure I needed it as the hard life I had led, combined with the after-effects of yellow fever and fever and ague, had played havoc with my nervous system. This trouble, quiet life in England, soon put right, and in a few months I found myself bound for India, as a partner in the house in Bombay, with quite a different life to look forward to, but very pleasant recollections of the experience I had gained and the good friends I had made. The death-rate, however, among those friends has lately been heavy, and there are very few left. I think, sad to relate, Murray Ainsley and Frank Hurst now only remain, of the good comrades who would always have stood by each other in any difficulty or danger. End of chapter 11